Heads up, horror fans. Stay no to drugs and stay out of the basement. You're listening to Confessions of a Final Girl on Halloween. <laughs> Hello everyone. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Molly, and I love scary movies, so I come here to process my feelings about them. Before I jump into tonight's topics, which include Halloween itself, as well as some of my favorite actually scary, scary movies, I... What are you doing here? Don't come any closer. They found me. You guys, I don't know how, but they found me. If you're listening to this, call the police. Tell them to come to 27... I have a confession to make. To forgive is the prime duty of the righteous. I don't care, Father. I am the Mad Hat Cat, and I also like scary movies. Now, unlike some people around here who may or may not currently be unconscious, I am not a horror movie fanatic. I love to watch scary movies with my friends, and I love to geek out with them over the movies that truly make them scream. And now, with special introductions out of the way, I luckily have some smelling salts in my pocket that I may use to rouse our usual host, and we may continue on with this very special Halloween episode. Thank you so much, Kat, for smothering me and then bringing me back to consciousness and also for joining me on tonight's super special Halloween episode of Confessions. For those of you who are not familiar with them, Kat is my best friend in the realm of theater, a director, an actor. Their performing arts have included everything from burlesque and cabaret to a glam rock band and just the list is endless. How did you describe yourself in the playbill for Bernhard Hamlet? Cat is some sort of a wild woods creature. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Uh, they've done it all, and they've done it all very well with such a flourish, and I am so pleased that they agreed to, to be here with me on my favorite night of the year. Well, thank you for all of those very extremely kind words. Oh, you deserve every one of them. I am very honored to be here. I was really excited that you were starting up another project like this, and I can't wait to see this continue to grow. Aww. And I'm really excited to be here for this particular episode because like you, Halloween is my favorite time of year. Fuck yeah, Halloween is the best. It's I so mean, good. I think it goes without saying that Halloween is the best, but I, I, I like saying it anyway. Although it, it came and went already much too quickly, as it always does. But with the end of Halloween, we must also remember and be grateful for the end of Halloween sales. Oh, yes. 75 to 95% off everything. Gimme, 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 gimme. No, it's so true. I love the um, the post-Halloween sales. Although I will say Walgreens down the street, um, the one down here didn't really have an enormous 
selection of Halloween decorations or candies this year, which is mm-hmm. a little disappointing because they normally devote two sides of an entire aisle to the holiday. This year they didn't. It was just one side and they've actually already cleared out half of that side for their Christmas stuff and they've already put the candy on sale. It's bizarre. Like, um, I should mention that we are actually recording this episode several days before Halloween, obviously. We know you'll be listening to it on or around Halloween. But so it isn't even actually technically Halloween yet. And they've already put their Halloween candy on sale. What the? What is up with that? I mean, it's 75% off at Lowe's for all Halloween decor. Already? Already. Okay, so maybe, <laughs> maybe the post-Halloween sales happening pre-Halloween isn't a horrible thing. Maybe we should go to Lowe's. Maybe <clears throat> we should. <laughs> all right, so before we get into tonight's topics, which I'm very excited to talk about Halloween in general, but um, I wanted very quickly to talk about Zombieland 2 Double Tap. Have you seen this yet, Kat? I have not seen it yet, but I am so excited. It's very, very good. I'm I'm not going to spoil anything for you or anyone out there who may be listening. I'll leave the room if you have to. No, no, do not leave. Don't you fucking leave this room. (laughs) You don't move. I got you here. I don't want you leaving. Um, But uh, no, the, the movie was fantastic. I didn't like it quite as much as I liked the first one, but I think that's true of almost all sequels. Um, there were some really great things. The experience in and of itself. I know you, you go to the Alamo a lot. Um... And I, I didn't for the longest time, but then of course we got one here in Midtown. I went to the Army of Darkness party they had there two weeks ago, and I really enjoyed the experience, so I was happy this time to go back. Normally when I go to the movie theater, it feels like a chore, um, because it's just not a good experience anymore, but the Alamo go out of their way to give you a really good experience at the theater these days. Yeah, I am really jealous that you got to go to the Army of Darkness. I can't remember if I was in rehearsal or if I had a show that night. Otherwise, I absolutely would have gone. And you do tend to spend a bit more there because, I mean, for me, I usually get food and drinks while I'm there. But, I mean, then it's it's all one stop. Uh, the folks behind Alamo Draft House are people who love movies. And they are just doing such great work with bringing back a lot of cult classics and giving people local opportunities to watch all of these great movies and people who can come together and who just really appreciate film as a medium and then, you know, the specific genres within that. And I I found that their programming is definitely a lot more impressive than any theater that I've seen in Omaha, really the whole time that I've lived here. It was really cool to see Serial Mom on the calendar. Um, But also, like, they're even kind of going a little further, even for me, like, because they're showing Cannibal Holocaust next week, which I could not believe. I could not believe it when I saw it on the calendar. I'm like, really? In Midtown Omaha, we're showing Cannibal Holocaust at our only local theater? I was really impressed. (laughs) Surprised and impressed. I don't think it was last year. I think it was the year prior. And it was one of those movies where we were both kind of simultaneously talking about them. And then we suddenly came to realize we were talking about the same movie. Sleepaway Camp. Sleepaway Camp. They showed that a couple of years ago um, at, at the Alamo out west. And like... It's awful. Oh, I love it so much. But I love it. It's great. No, have you seen the sequels? No. Oh, man. You I know they see, exist. You need to see them. Um, <laughs> and that's the thing about Soapboy Camp is that it's... 
I remember a time when that was a very obscure film. It is actually becoming less obscure, primarily because of the nature of Angela Baker as a, as a character. She has become a really interesting sort of human interest study, you know. Um, so it's really cool to see like everybody talking about Sleepaway Camp. But back to Double Tap, they showed this really interesting like short film slash music video called We Together, which was sort of like a zombie dance story. So they showed that before Double Tap, as well as a, a really nice extended trailer for Return of the Living Dead and a short documentary about Twinkies. It, it was it was all very entertaining. Um, the one thing that I will say, and this will be the only comment I make on Zombieland, uh, because you have, like you said, you haven't seen it. I, I don't know how many people listening will have seen it, but I was a teensy bit disappointed with the character of Wichita as she was written for this film. I loved her so much in the first Zombieland and I felt that she was a little bit more of a prop in this one. She didn't have a whole lot to do and they, they just kind of fell back on what is a pretty easy objective that I don't know. I was not super happy with it. Other than that, absolutely had so much fun. Uh, really glad, really glad to have seen it. What's his name? You're so tiny. No, you're not. Now you are. Now you're not. Now you are. Now you're not. Now you are. Now you're not. Tiny. Big. Tiny. She is adorable. <laughs> In addition to the extended trailer for Return of the Living Dead, which they showed as part of the pre-show, the trailer for Gretel and Hansel, they also showed. I had not heard of this prior to seeing the trailer. Um, have you seen the trailer for this? I have. What are your thoughts on it? The whole feel of it, the very minimalistic music that they use in the background, the occasional stilted motions that people are making where they kind of play with the fl the frame rate and just the all overall tone of it. The very stark lighting, lots of silhouettes of trees, of that pointed house, of presumably the witch in her pointed hat coming through the forest. I, oh, that's my shit, y'all. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I agree. It seems, it's very eerie. At first I thought it was uh, going to be a part of an anthology, maybe because I'm in that creep show headspace still, where I'm like, oh, Hansel and Gretel, that would make a great installment in a kind of retelling, a darker retelling of Grimm's fairy tales. An even darker. <laughs> An even darker retelling, yeah, because God, because Grimm's fairy tales. Because German fairy tales, y'all. Yeah, and so I was I was a little surprised to see um, that it's a, a like a full-length film. I'm very pleased to see Sophia Lillis. I really enjoyed her in the first chapter uh, of the new It. I thought she was just spectacular. So I'm glad to see her getting more work in the genre. And I think, as you said, what we think is the witch. It's creepy as, as hell. I really, I enjoy the look, her face, everything about the shape of her face is very unique and almost sinister. But at the same time, they're going to have to turn the story on its head at some point in order to keep audience interest. I mean, we all know the story of Hansel and Gretel. So, I mean... Gretel is the witch in the end. That's what I'm hoping, actually. <laughs> and is actually Scottish and not German. <laughs> <laughs> now get around while I lose a date And what goes on when it gets late Along about midnight the ghosts and banshees Get together for a jamboree We have been going to a number of haunted houses this year, We've done a few in the past. Uh, we're doing more local ones this year. Last year, we went to Kansas City and did all of the big attractions at Worlds of Fun that were haunted houses. Like, they shut the park down after, I think, like, nine or ten at night. 
and it's like an 18 plus kind of thing. Wow, that sounds great. So you said that you you went to Worlds of Fun last year. Yes. So what would be your favorite haunted house that you guys have been to this year? That's a bit tough uh, because, I, I mean, you know me, I have a very difficult time choosing, quote, favorite things. That's true. Because there is so much to enjoy in different ways about things. Like, is the best haunted house one that makes you pee your pants a little bit? And, you know, like, really gets your heart racing? Is it the one that is, like, kind of cheesy, but just oh so charming because of its cheese? Is it the one where the people who run it are clearly very invested in it, and they just love it so much and keep doing it year after year after year? Is it the one where the actors don't just come up and scream in your face? Those are my least favorite. If that's all you can do, I'm not scared. I'm just annoyed. <laughs> Actually, same. Yeah. Never been a big fan of the in-your-face jump scare. I'm also not a fan of the never-ending strobe lights and neon, like, day-glow clown paint everywhere. It just, at this point, it feels very tacky. I feel like there's so much more you can do with a haunt. I will say this. Uh, Mystery Manor, which is is downtown, a longtime fixture in Omaha, I will say has the best variety without being way too much. Right. As far as how you are moving physically through the space, which of your senses are being dulled or heightened. Uh, I don't believe they have a claustrophobic space, you know, where they blow up the walls and you have to like squeeze through them like you're going through a rebirthing ceremony. <laughs> Wait, you don't like that? If I'm wearing my glasses, I have to go through backwards, otherwise <laughs> they get caught in the walls. <laughs> but then again, uh in in terms of general tension held and tension expounded on throughout a single walkthrough experience, I would have to say that I really appreciate Haunted Hollow's main attraction, which is their haunted house. It has several stories. It has several different rooms. You begin in the basement, you end in the attic, and there are less scare actors there than at Mystery Manor. I felt that the tension was more evenly maintained, which is something that me personally, whether it's um, a haunted house or a scary movie or a video game, or a scary book. I want I want that maintenance of tension with occasional dips and occasional spikes instead of constantly spiking and then dropping. Oh god, my my heart is oh god, there's something else over there. And that that exhausts me too quickly, and I don't get as good of a scare as if an experience or a piece of media has uh, a maintained tension. Little dips, but then bring it back up again. And maybe just have half a jump scare, but not so much. Okay, but we didn't go all the way back down and, and all the way up, all the way up, all the way up until we reach our final climax. And then finally, at the very end, you get to just collapse. Oh, thank my various heathen gods, it's over. Absolutely. That's such a beautiful way to describe it. When you were talking about that, it actually brought me back to something from weeks ago. When I rewatched um, The Innkeepers, this, I'm going to get away from haunted houses for a sec, but I promise it relates. It's, um, I was watching the movie The Innkeepers, which The Innkeepers does exactly what you described. As, you know, as a horror film, it's almost like a crash course in desensitization to the point where there were so many false scares that created this, like, f this empty tension, this hollow tension. And 
by the end of the movie, I was, I just was completely numb to anything that they were showing me. I no longer cared and I was tired. And the first thing that I did when The Innkeepers was over was I went and I watched 1408, which is a different haunted hotel film. And it does that, that tension build so well. And I related it to Alan after The Innkeepers was over. I was like, man, that was like, that was like having the most anticlimactic, disappointing sex of my life. I okay, want to go no. to 1408 and get laid, like good and proper. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, see, I was just about to ask you, hey, is it okay to mention sex on this podcast? Oh, of course. <laughs> because that whole time I was describing it, trust me, to relate something back to sex. Um, but that's exactly what it's like. I, I, I don't want to be jolted every five seconds because that's just point. Are we done yet? Because I'm tired. Yeah, exactly. I kind of just want to sleep. Like, there's no real satisfaction anywhere, and you're not keeping me on the edge of anything, Mm -hmm. whether it is a haunted house or um, an art installation. Or sex. Or sex. (laughs) It's a performance piece. It's an art installation. It's sex. Yeah, and it should all be a little (laughs) terrifying and build the tension well. Okay. I, I think I think Haunted Hollow sounds sounds like a lot of fun. I'm I I haven't been there. Um, I've been to Mystery Manor. I haven't done a lot of haunts in Omaha because they're usually so far out. Um, and for those of you who don't know, I am I both don't drive and am agoraphobic, so traveling not the easiest thing for me. So the further out a haunt is, the the harder it is for me to get there. Mystery Manor is right downtown, easy to get to, and I I really like. I really like it a lot, but I've heard, you know, from your stories of, ha- of uh, Haunted Hollow, and, and also I've heard a lot about Vala's pumpkin patch out, mm-hmm. out in Gretna, but I've also heard that that over time has become more and more family friendly to the point where it's really just for, for tiny kids now. And one can only frighten tiny children so much uh, before they explode in a pile of confetti. Speaking of tiny children and Halloween, did you hear about this trick-or-treat ban that they've got going in Chesapeake, Virginia? How can you ban trick-or-treating? Well... Like, after a certain hour, or just, like, blanket ban? It's an age limit. Like, it's an age-limited blanket ban. Um, Up or down? Uh, up. It's, um... I heard about this ban first last year, and it has kind of resurfaced this year. It is all over the news right now on the internet. You know, just people are just going nuts over this ban. And what it, what it is now, it's gone through changes since it was first... Uh, instated. Um, But what it is now is if you are 14 years old or older, there is a law in place that states if you are caught trick-or-treating, you can be fined up to $250. Initially, the ban actually included jail times, like if you were caught and it was 13 and older. Now, obviously, that's fucking stupid. Like, on the face of it. right now it's amazing you guys can't see it i'm just making all of the faces i how is this enforceable are they asking children to bring their id cards and i say children because because people under the age of 16 potentially people under the age of 20 are children no and i completely agree with you i do and i don't agree with this ban however I do think it's important because I've been seeing so many articles crop back up this year about this. Apparently, there are other towns in the United States that are following Chesapeake's example and they're instituting bans. And that's what's really pissing me off. So 
the thing about this particular ban, um, and CNN actually released a really great article about it, and I, I was I was poking around on the Chesapeake's governmental website too. The ban was put into effect in 1968. So this is an old ordinance, and it was the, the Chesapeake government's response to a particularly violent and destructive set of incidents that happened one Halloween in 68. Um and while I don't, I don't agree with it at all, I do understand where Chesapeake specifically must have been coming from. The pressure that they was probably put on them from parents back in 68 to do something. Teenagers do ruin everything. Oh, they really do. I mean, they're sociopaths, you know. Um, I love you. Any teenagers that are listening, you, you have a really hard life. I have mixed parents, feelings about par- you. Parent, parents are awful. Teachers are awful. Your friends and all of your peers are awful. Just make it through to the other side and you can laugh about it in your 20s. No, so true. But I, you know, I also feel that teenagers, I mean, there's a reason why teenagers are so rarely tried as adults because they can't be held entirely 100% Their brains are doing weird things. Weird shit. Um, but so, so I want, I, I, I do think it's important because I've seen these articles cropping up now about small towns hearing about this and following suit. And I don't think they're really looking too deeply into the Chesapeake law because in addition to the law being old, the city of Chesapeake uh, actually made a statement and they included it underneath their Halloween safety tips on their website. And it says, this is what it says. Chesapeake police staff will focus on making sure the evening is safe for everyone, not actively seeking out violations of the time or age limits. For example, a 15-year-old safely trick-or-treating with a younger sibling is not going to have any issues. That same child taking pumpkins from porches and smashing them in the street more likely will. The city's trick-or-treat ordinance was updated in 2019 when city council voted to remove the never-before-used penalty of jail time and to raise the age limit to 14. I just wish more people would just look a little bit more deeply into it because people are enraged on the internet right now saying that, you know, like Chesapeake is fucking evil and they're just trying to just ruin Halloween. This law, I think, was probably more just a show of response. As many random, seemingly random laws are, uh, we have one in Omaha about uh, adults not being allowed to be in cars with children they are not related to if the child has their socks and shoes removed. I will have to look up the specifics of that, but what? there's a thing about that. And the reason it was instituted was because, because pedophilia. Because of some incident. Because of some incident. Right. A and specific then... incident. And without knowing the council members who originally brought forth this measure in, what was it, 1968? Mm-hmm. We don't know if they had religious motivations or if, you know, potentially they all had teenagers who were causing a ruckus. Maybe it was their teenagers and they were making their city council person parents look bad for doing this. And so they said, no, we're tough on crime. Even when the crimes come from our own wee babes. Exactly. No, for sure. Um, And so... So that was just kind of bugging. It was kind of bugging me, you know, this week, just seeing so many people freaking out about it. However, on the flip side of that, my biggest question to Chesapeake or any other town that is now needlessly instituting these laws, I would assume that most of the towns that are trying to follow suit with Chesapeake probably don't have the same motivation, didn't have the same incident. They're just like, well, that's a good idea. Because Halloween safety is a huge fucking sensitive trigger for parents. And while I'm not a parent, so I can't entirely understand, and I'm aware of that, like, I mean, I get it. 
what is being done for those 14 to 19 year olds or 20 year olds that are too old now to legally trick or treat, you know, according to the law anyway, the kids that are, are, are that have that pressure not to go trick or treating because they're too old for it now. But they're too young to go out to the same parties that like their parents are. So I mean, how many 15, 16 year old kids are just sitting at home on Halloween twiddling their thumbs? That is a recipe for some shit. You know, I mean, we need to give teenagers a place to go on Halloween, lest we find even more destruction. Shit, what's the line from Archer? Um, Do you want Satanists? Because this is how you get Satanists. <laughs> you don't let the 14, 15, 16-year-olds go trick-or-treating anymore, as long as they don't go toilet-papering houses and egging cars and smashing pumpkins and stealing the candy of little children. Well, guess who they're going to turn to? The devil. Well, in that case, that's like a commercial in favor of it for me, actually. Never mind. I take it back. Let the kids just do it home <laughs> and find their way to the Dark Lord. <laughs> Hail Satan. <sighs> yeah, so I just thought that was interesting. I wanted to get your take on it. <clears throat> to be fair, when you first said it to me, I had exactly the same reaction as the internet, I suppose, because I didn't know the whole story. No, and I think it is important to get both sides of the story. Um, and I, I don't agree. I don't agree that... I don't really think that anyone should be restricted from trick-or-treating uh, of any age. It's one of the one of the sources of my bitterness with Halloween, which, you know, I mean, I love this holiday so much, but I'm still bitter about the fact that because I'm 36, I can't go around and get free candy. Um, so, you know, I part of me thinks that the ban in general is just not the way to go. But then again, I don't work for a city government, so I can only imagine the pressure. Well, and in addition to your question about, you know, removing a uh, potentially fine and safe activity, aren't all of the ruckus-causing, mischief-making activities that they're referencing, smashing pumpkins, uh, stealing candy from children, egging cars, toilet-papering houses, isn't all of that technically illegal on its own anyway? It never needed its own ordinance. So I do think you're right that when this was originally instated, they wanted to have a small show of force. We are doing a thing. You had qualms, and we have addressed said qualms. We are we are good social servants. You're welcome, America. <laughs> yeah, and you're right. I mean, all of those things... I mean, if you were to egg somebody's house... That would be defacement of property. Absolutely. You could already be punished for that. If you were to walk up to a child that you do not know and just yank candy out of their bucket, that would be something that someone could punish you for, you know, not just your parents. And so, yeah, it was in a lot of ways an unnecessary thing. I mean, I never did that when I was a kid. Not one time was I the kind of kid who would have, you know, smashed somebody else's jack. I, I have too far too deep an appreciation for jack-o'-lanterns and I pumpkin was carving. Say, like, <laughs> to... I was going to say, to be fair, we are the sort of people who view Halloween as like a very sacred time of year. Exactly. We would never do anything to deface or to insult the spirit of this great day. But, you know, if, if, we, if we had been uh, the sort of kids, we'd be like, Halloween's a stupid costume. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, see, that's my imitation of a teenager <laughs> who, who cares not for Halloween, is going through an awkward puberty, has not yet learned uh, the power of washing one's face on a daily basis. Hey man, I wash my face every day. You still couldn't see it. It still looked like a giant piece of 13-year-old pizza. It was <laughs> disgusting. Um, 
Uh, no, for sure. Did you did you go trick or treating a lot as a kid? I did. What did you? I mean, now because you're a little bit younger than I am, you are thirty now. Or are you 29? I'm 31. You're th- what? I'm old! No, you're not 31. I am! I don't know why one year makes a big difference in my head, but it really does. I totally thought you were just 30. Um, okay, well, happy birthday. Uh, I feel like a dick. <laughs> but, so, okay, so you're only, you're only five years younger than me. You probably didn't, because trick-or-treating is very different now. It has changed so much since we were kids. Um... Because I remember when I was nine, this is the first Halloween that I actually have vivid memories of, was when I was nine years old. I dressed up as Bella Lugosi and Dracula. Um, I even had the slicked back hair with the little, the widow's peak. Mm-hmm. My mom did the widow's peak Ooh. for me. And I had the big garish cape with the medallion in the middle. It was very theatrical and man, I loved it. But we, my mom and I left the house at probably like nine and we didn't come home until almost 2 a.m. We went all over the damn neighborhood and there were houses that were set up as like little miniature haunted houses in the yard and there was no, we could just pick a direction and go. And we both had huge pillowcases full of candy when we came home. Oh, you did the pillowcase thing too. We did. Did See, you that? Guys? That was always my favorite. I was like, get out of here with this plastic pumpkin business. <laughs> Not <laughs> pillowcase me. Right? That was the way to go. It was the ultimate scam because you got like just four times the volume of candy in that pillowcase. Well, and then it's just so much easier to carry. You fling it over your back. When it starts getting too heavy for your wrist. And you get the added bonus of feeling like a tramp. You know? That was the bad that was the equally like little bindle. Yeah, a little bindle. I mean without <laughs> the, you know, the You know, but the stick. The 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 the, the, the old timey version of, of, of tramps that before before we realized the the kind of not so great things that homeless folks uh, can potentially go through. But the kind who like to sit around a campfire with the other tramps with a can of beans? Exactly. And oh yeah, no, I'm go- I'm going down southways. It's getting a bit cold here now. Exactly. That's gonna, ho- gonna hop a train in the morning. Did I ever tell you about the time I ran away from home? Same year uh, as the year Which? that I dressed as Dracula, and I I did that. I I had a baton, you know, like a twirling baton, mm-hmm. and I took a little handkerchief and I put a couple of my favorite troll dolls in it. It tied it around the end of that fucking baton, and I was like, I'm leaving. <laughs> that was, I, I don't remember. My, I had a disgustingly happy childhood. I did. I always got along with my mom really well, and I loved both of my dads. But so, like, I, you know, my parents and I, we, I, we very rarely fought, and I was a bit of a Hermione Granger. I very rarely broke the rules, especially at that age. Um, got a little rebellious as a teenager, but for the most part, I was a pretty uh, straight-laced kid. So I do not remember what my mom and I fought about that day. It was such a rare thing you'd think we would, but neither of us remember it. I think we both just kind of blocked it out, but we had a big old fight. And I was like, I'm leaving. I'm going to go. But I'm just sitting there crying in my room, just tying my little handkerchief around my baton because that's how I wanted to go out, you know? <laughs> and uh, the best part about that story to me is that my mother, to to and she didn't get mad when she realized that I was running away like a tramp. She... Got brought, I was really into troll dolls as a kid, and she got one of her trolls and she knocked on the base of my bedroom door, like the real bottom, you know, like troll height, and creeps open the door and pokes just the troll's head in at the bottom. And she's like, Molly, what are you doing, Molly? In like this troll voice. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm running away, troll. 
<laughs> she's just like, I mean, we were play acting, you know, and I was old enough at that time to know, you know, what was happening. But I just, that was us. That was, my, I mean, that's growing up with a mother who wanted to be a Broadway star. That was what it was like. <laughs> anyway, that's my, my handkerchief on the end of my stick. <laughs> Troll convinced me not to leave home story. <laughs> Has nothing to do with Halloween. I'm sorry, <laughs> but that was the same year as the year I dressed up as Dracula. Well, so what about what what costumes did you like? What trick or treating experiences do you remember most vividly from your childhood? The costume that I remember the most when I was a kid, I probably remember the best because I actually have a photograph of this, and it's one that my sister and mother like to uh, circulate on social media because it features both my sister and myself. And I had a real big thing for watching Nick at Night, and I Dream of Jeannie was one of my favorite shows. And, you know, uh, I what was her what was her her kooky dark haired sister or cousin? Oh yeah. That was like a real groovy hep cat. I guess they probably just always called her Jeannie's sister, but she you know, she was played by the same actor and she was just done up real dark and uh, a little less on the cheery side and a little more on the vampy side. And because I had dark hair uh, and, you know, big fringe bangs because, you know, it was the 90s, I, I had, like, big sleep pants with crescent moons and stars all over them. And I had bedroom slippers that had stars and moons on them. And I had... What was supposed to have been a hackney jasmine costume from a dance costume that I had had a few years prior. So it was covered in silver sequins and like little teardrop faceted silver beads all over. And I had a big ponytail on the top of my head. And then on like an elastic band tied to my waist, I had my bottle, you know, like a, a little tiny vase that's big enough for like a single rose to sit in kind of thing. And like, I just have this look on my face like, oh God, this child is going to be an actor. <laughs> I remember that costume very, very vividly, probably because of that picture. The only other trick-or-treating experience that I remember very specifically these days um, was my, f I feel like it was my first one that was with people my own age with no adult supervision. I would have been 12, potentially 11, but I was, for whatever reason, this was like the one time I was with Look, I went to Catholic school. We didn't really have the cool kids or the popular girls, but that's basically who I was with. They were with all the all the girls, you know, their families had big fuck off McMansions and <laughs> <laughs> I was probably, you know, dressed sort of in theme of Halloween or maybe it was something from a Tim Burton movie. Uh, there, there weren't a whole lot of young kids my age who lived in my neighborhood. Maybe like a few blocks up I had my former best friend, another Molly. But most of, most of the folks in my neighborhood at that time were actually older people, like uh, 60 plus. And none of them had kids in the house still. They, if they did, they were all grown up. Uh, so this time, when I was 11 or 12, with cool kids quotes, um, we had gone out. You know, it was it was a it was a West Omaha neighborhood, so they had the full size candy bars. <laughs> and um, I don't ever recall. I always see this on television shows where the family that is the focus of the show builds a haunted house in their house. 
and the dad is just trying so, so hard to be spooky and everyone's like, dad. But yeah, it's, it's that trope of, you know, parent tries to do cool, spooky, haunted house, but it's really not all that spooky. It's like, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a bowl of peeled grapes. Yeah, it's eyeballs. Uh, it's spaghetti. It's brains. Meh. So I never experienced anybody's like personal haunted house like that. There were people who had like spooky decorations and who liked to dress up and come to the door and go, Welcome, children! Only one candy bar per child. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, what I also remember at the very end of that night, you want to talk about teenagers getting into some trouble when they don't, you know, have somewhere to go or something to do and they just get into stupid shit. I remember somebody that night snorting pixie sticks. Oh my god! I didn't actually do it because I'm like, fuck it, no, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> doing this. And I think after that I was like, I permanently swore off cool people. Right. I'm like, if you call yourselves cool or popular or anyone like gets in awe around you, like I honestly just want nothing to do with you because wow, you're a bunch of idiots. <laughs> Um, or maybe it's just that I'm too weird and don't fit into those circles, and so I avoid them like the plague so that I do not have to feel the sting of rejection. Trust me, you want to be too weird <laughs> to not be invited to pixie stick snorting parties. That's, that's... But then, but then I remember one person sneezed, <laughs> and it was blue. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, snorting pixie sticks, that's, that's a good fucking time. Children don't do that. <laughs> Adults, Adults don't, don't do, do that. that. <laughs> uh, what do you think? Have you heard of it? Because neither of us have children. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, we don't really, I don't think there's any reason for either of us to keep up with what's going on in trick-or-treating nowadays. But have you heard of trunk-or-treating? It's like the new yes. thing. Yeah. Yes, where people like go to a designated parking lot either at a religious building or a mall or a dead mall as it were. <laughs> Or, um, yeah, just anything like that. And it's something organized by local parents so that they don't have to go door to door. And it's more controlled and everybody stays within sight. I get it, but I'm not a parent, so I don't feel the awful, horrible pangs of living with a constant 24-7 news stream. Right. No, I, and I, again, yeah, I don't really feel like I'm qualified to weigh in on this. And you're right. The, I mean, news media, for God's sake, especially about Halloween. You know, I still remember seeing Halloween 2 for the very first time. I was very young when I saw that movie. And one of the opening scenes at the hospital is of a little boy with a fucking piece of glass sticking out of his tongue that he bit into an apple. And it was, it was, you know, that was a huge fear in the 80s in particular. It's everywhere. And so I understand why parents are afraid. But man, at the same time, it does feel a little helicoptery. And it's just because of those great memories that I have as a child trick-or-treating. They're some of my favorite memories from youth. And so to think that these kids aren't going to get to experience that, they're going to be fishing candy out of the back of a friggin' Nissan Sentra, and that's their Halloween experience, you know? Well, and it, it's interesting that, that you mention uh, that, that scene. You're much more versed in Stephen King lore than I am, but isn't that kind of one of the main uh, inspirations for it? Is that the, the child abduction thing was so big in the 80s because there were just a couple of big news stories and then suddenly everyone assumed it was everywhere. I actually don't know. I love that you think I'm really super versed in Stephen <laughs> King lore. Um, I actually just became a fan of King a couple years ago through through John. Um, he was a, That's an right. avid fan. Yeah, I actually didn't like Stephen King as a writer for a long time, like decades. So I, I'm still in the very early stages of discovering King for the Same. first time. Yeah, so I don't know. 
I mean, that would make sense. He's gotten inspiration, I think, from, you know, just all over. Uh, and so that would make sense. We were very afraid. 80, the 80s was just, I was just talking about this two episodes ago uh, for my House of the Devil, my fangirl's guide to the House of the Devil. I talked a lot about the satanic panic, which was also kind of at its peak in the 80s. Again, another time of just, we were looking for the darkness everywhere, in every corner, at every time. And Halloween in particular must have been just a mortifying time for parents. It's sad because it's, you know, for me, such a, a, a magical time, you mm-hmm. know. And on the on the one hand, I know that, you know, we, we look back on this with, with a feeling of nostalgia. And it's it's the way things used to be. And, and nothing can ever stay the same way it is. And, and the world we live in is very different in a lot of ways. And it would be nice. I, I think we're in, you know, kind of a transitional period right now, you know, gripped tight on the shoulders of, of, of our small children. And by our, I mean, you know, society's small children. I, I feel like we will start to relax just a little bit. And, and it's, it's, it's a cycle like anything else. It's an ebb and a flow. There is an increase in tension and a release of tension. There is uh, a rise in conservatism and a rise in liberalism. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I think we'll see it kind of, um, kind of mellow itself out again. Nerds are really amazing because we get to bring all of those things back. Those things that made us so excited, so genuinely happy. We're, we're bringing that back into the mainstream and making it okay for people to relive moments of their childhood again as adults or as teenagers and, and not have it be something that you are ridiculed for or told you know, you're ruining your your life because you're living in a fantasy world. You can't have that anymore because you're too old. As long as it doesn't become your whole life, then, well, in our cases, as long as it doesn't become your whole life and you're still able to maintain a job, (laughs) then that's a really wonderful thing. And and Halloween, maybe that's why it's so sacred to us. It's kind of that, that last bastion of being able to indulge in our our childhood whimsy, even if it scares us, maybe especially because it scares us. No, I agree. Uh, Halloween, at least comparatively, you know, with with most of the other holidays that we have here in America, Halloween is a spectacle, and it always has been a spectacle. It's a smorgasbord of activities and feelings and sights and sounds in a way that Christmas no longer is, in a way that Thanksgiving certainly never was, um, in a way that for me as a kid, 4th of July was also kind of a big deal, but the older I get, the more annoyed I am by it. Um, now I'm just really irritated on the 4th mm-hmm. of July. I'm like, I just want to watch Jaws alone. <laughs> Please stop setting off fireworks for the next six days, like, you know, um, but... I mean, Halloween, it was an opportunity, it's always been an opportunity to really explore sort of the inner self as well as more real-time confrontations of our fears, which, you know, I just, that's like, it's, it's like a life philosophy that I think is just so important. And then you also have the combination of the perfect colors and the great season and everything around you and you have parties to go to and there were always events at school where you got to dress up at school and see what everybody else wanted to be. And it was really a very early form of popularized nerddom, actually, because, Mm -hmm. you know, kids that were always too cool to really, like, you know, 
talk too much to you about the thing they love and you both show up and you're both dressed up as She-Ra or something, you know, and you're like, ha you thought we had nothing in common, you bitch. We both love She-Ra. Get feel, over here and be my friend. I feel like maybe that's based in fact. Uh, no, no. Personal that was, experience. That was completely <laughs> hypothetical, not at all real. But at least it's not souling. Do you know what souling is? I would. I just read about this. Actually, actually, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> do you want to talk about souling? No, because I really want. I want you to like paint me a picture in, <laughs> okay. in that way. All right. That you so <clears throat> Molly do. All right. So it's the Middle Ages, it's England in the Middle Ages to be exact. I was gonna do an accent, but I don't think I should. <laughs> I that's okay. I was gonna try to do like recorder sounds because <laughs> recorder concerts were a big, big thing. Yeah. In uh, in the dark ages. Oh, of course. Just a little, you know, hot cross bun. <laughs> um Did you ever want those cases for a recorder? You know, the little black case? I love that. <laughs> anyway, um so yeah, so in England in the Middle Ages, um, this obviously isn't the only like known origin of trick or treating, but it's definitely I think had it was one of the things that had the biggest influences on what is trick or treating for us in the United States. It was it was this process of souling, which I just think is so bizarre, <laughs> where the poor and children, and then eventually I think uh, members of all classes started joining in, and it became something that just people in general did. If you were like you know if you wanted treats, they would go door to door and they would they would pray for the souls of the people inside of these homes in exchange for cookies that they called soul cakes. So they were just basically the people who lived in these houses would bribe people to put in a good word for them with God in exchange for these fucking spicy, like, nutmeggy cookies. And I just think that's so weird. I kind of wish now, like, I would like to just this year, you know this, normally I give out uh, books as, for Halloween instead of candy. Um, this year I don't want to do that. This year I think I want to force people to sing and dance for me and or pray to Rod Serling for me, you know, like, Rod, wait for Molly on the other side. Yes, now may I have my Hershey bar? Um, that's my goal, I think. I'd like to do that. It's neat. Like, if you would like to make, I've never called them soul cakes, but the recipe that is behind what I like to make at this time of year actually kind of comes from this tradition. And that's where my uh, familiarity comes from it. Uh, because, you know me, I'm a pagany little son of a gun. <laughs> and, um, at this time of year, I'm still kind of over in the Britannia Celt side of things before it starts to get really cold and I move more over to my Germanic roots. But, uh, I, these, these sweet, spicy, um, cookies and cakes is, is something that I like to make every year. And, 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 and you're exactly right. It's the going, we will pray for your souls. And in exchange, you will, uh, bring forth your show of good faith, uh, by, by giving us a sweet and spicy treat. Um, and, and of course, you know, it's England. So everybody is all about those foreign, faraway spices because everything they have is a little bit bland. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, when, when it's, when it's raining all the time, uh, there are only certain things that grow at certain times of the year and they don't always grow super well. And so, you literally have to spice things up. These were a very special thing. And what you were saying about, um, you know, going back to the trunk or treating thing, the, the going, going souling was, it was a community activity. And 
and like many other things, um, yes, it starts with the poor and the marginalized and has an upward trend and eventually the rich majority, um, or, you know, uh, the, the wealthier minority pick up on slang and fashion. And in this case, uh, all Hallow's Eve activities, uh, that they, you know, find quaint and amusing and, oh, we shall go and bake cakes from our neighbors, even though we could afford to feed the entire village with cakes. Definitely not a bad way to secure a place among the heavens than to bribe your way in there with sweet cake. When the spooks have a midnight jamboree, they break it up with a fiendish glee. Ghosts are bad, but the one that's cursed is the headless horseman. He's the worst. We've been here a long time. We really just got to our first, like, historic tidbit about Halloween. Um, this is the first year that I've been doing this podcast, my first Halloween with the podcast. So it's the first time that I ever sat down with the express purpose of learning some cool stuff about Halloween to, you know, talk about here. And so I learned about souling, which I'd never heard of. And then I also learned... <laughs> Uh, I guess the historic, or at least what we believe to be the most accurate historic origins of the witch's broom. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was that was interesting. <laughs> uh, from the look on your face, I, I think I know which origin story you're talking about. Broomsticks as phallic objects and weird fantastical potions meant to lubricate the ends of them so that they may be used for the witches to... Um, Mount and take flight, as it were. A large domestic applicator stick for hallucinogenic <laughs> herbs. <laughs> I don't know how accurate it is, but I like to believe it is very accurate. I it's it's one of the it's one of the more fun versions of it. If you've seen any classic pieces of art from uh, after, let's say, the 15th century on into uh, potentially like the 18th century, there is uh, first of all a huge fascination of witches that occurs on cycle just repeatedly uh, throughout Western Europe and then into um, what would become the United States. Just repeated fascination. Everybody loves to get up in a tizzy about witches. Um, A lot of the classic artwork used to actually feature witches flying on brooms, not how we tend to see them in like Halloween decorations with the top of the broomstick in front of them, maybe, you know, gripped between their hands with the bristles of the broom out behind them. It actually used to be depicted as the other way around or uh, riding them vertically. That lends some credence to uh, the whole idea of mounting the broom and using it as an applicator for hallucinogenic herbs or solves, as it were. What are you going to do on a, on a dark and stormy night when the moon is full and bright? You're going to slather your broomstick in hallucinogenic salve and take flight. Did you just write a poem about... Yes, I did. (laughs) I did. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I fucking love you. Oh my god, that's a beautiful poem. (laughs) I need to write that down. Another side of the whole, you know, uh, brooms being associated with witches... Uh, witches are almost always thought of, uh, at least in that time period, as being distinctly feminine, i.e. mysterious, because women aren't people! Right, well, and also don't forget that we're also talking about female sexuality, which female sexuality was, like, the dirtiest of words back then. I mean, that it didn't exist. Women don't have orgasms or genitals that enjoy being touched. And if they do, 
they are possessed by the devil. Exactly. If they enjoy sex, clearly there's something wrong. But anything associated with, you know, that very distinctive femininity that was not chaste and girlish, as it were, uh, any any time that it came to a point where this woman knows a lot, she has a lot of what seems to be almost otherworldly knowledge. You know, she she mixes things up in a in a big pot and then feeds her children, and suddenly her children aren't coughing and hacking anymore; they're feeling better. Right? What is this? And she's uh, she's always got that broom with her, and she's always waving it all over the place. What What is this about? Just anything to, associated with femininity, domesticity, um, and just the, the, the feminine mystique. The, this is one of my favorite subjects, by the way. If you couldn't tell, I have a whole plethora of books uh, focusing on the feminine mystique in uh, literary archetype, wild women, mad women, witch women. Yeah, no, you're, I mean, absolutely. Um, one of the articles that I read from Alison Meyer, she said, since many witch confessions were obtained under torture and the Catholic Church and others could be wildly reactionary to any deviance, all of this is hearsay. So nobody really knows for sure mm-hmm. whether or not this happened. Um, and think of the splinters, she said, <laughs> which I thought was great. But the image of the witch on the broomstick combined anxieties on women's sexuality, drug use, and religious freedom into one enduring myth. And I thought that was a really, really, it was really well put. And well, and combine that with uh, defying gravity to steal a line from Wicked. Yeah. And medical science, mm-hmm, which almost mm-hmm. always appeared as magic, you know, mm-hmm. like you said. So, yeah, all of it. It's just all kinds of, of anxieties in one. And I never thought about the complexity of that very seemingly simple image of this this witchy woman on a broomstick. But there's mm-hmm. so many layers to it. It's really cool. I do have one last little tidbit about Halloween that I really wanted to to touch down on tonight. And that is uh, the history of the jack-o'-lantern and the carving of the jack-o'-lantern and the legend of Stingy Jack. Now, I, I know I don't have an enormous listener base right now, but I do know that I have a few listeners that do not live in the States. They're they live in um, countries overseas. So for them, the legend of Stingy Jack and uh, the souling, uh, which, you know, from what I understand, going souling is actually something that still happens in, in certain parts of the world, like Portugal and the Philippines. Um, and then this, you know, this Irish and uh, this Irish folktale, the legend of Stingy Jack, these things are probably not super new you know, to people who grew up outside of the United States. But we don't ever talk about our history here, you know? We don't give a fuck about our history here. <laughs> just, you know, we just sort of feel like the United States just manifested itself one day in the perfectly preserved state with nothing wrong with it. Oh, yes, and you there know, was no one here before us. Nobody here before us Not at a soul. all. Not a single human being that lived and here. And if they were, we certainly would have done... Uh, we, we certainly wouldn't have done anything terrible uh, in order to make a place for ourselves. No, we would never have done that. Nope. And then anytime something does become in any way like historic, mm-hmm. obviously Omaha notwithstanding because Omaha has a spectacular historic preservation society. But I've lived in several states in the United States where it's like, oh, I'm sorry, is that building, what did you say, that building's 20 years old? Got to get rid of that. Get rid of it right now. <laughs> we don't like history here as a whole en masse. But so the legend of Stingy Jack, are you familiar with this? I am I'm a little bit familiar. I think as you tell me, it will come 
back into my mind. Okay. So, so please, again, paint well, me a picture, darling. I would love to try. So it's, um, there's a whole mess of versions of this story out there. Uh, but basically, Stingy Jack uh, is a character from an Irish folktale who is a notoriously greedy and crafty drunk who went out of his way to play tricks on the devil in an effort to stave off death um, and also eternal damnation. And he also wanted to save a few bucks in the process, as was Stingy Jack's way. The gist of the story is that Jack's awful reputation intrigued the devil. So he went to find him, and Jack, fearing the damnation of his eternal soul, convinced the devil to have a drink with him before he took him down to hell. And at the bar, Jack tricked the devil into turning himself into a coin to pay the bartender. He then took the coin and put it into his pocket next to a silver cross, which trapped the devil in the coin form. And he told the devil, I will let you out, but only if you promise to leave me alone for a year. And the devil's like, fine. And he had to he had to stay true to his word. I mean, because one thing that every devil that's ever been told about seems to have in common is that the devil's true to his word. So he left Jack alone for a year. The following year, the devil came back to Jack. And I don't know if like Jack was just like destined to die at this time, you know, but he came back. Um, and this time Jack's like, okay, all right, you got me. You left me alone for a year. I appreciate that. Before you take me down to hell, though, I'd like to request a last meal. There's a really nice apple tree down the road. Come with me. I'll get an apple. I'll eat it. We'll go. You can take me to hell. And the devil's like, okay. Because I think he kind of respects Jack, you know? You've got to respect with, with trickster to trickster. Jack, you're a legend, man. Absolutely. So he takes the devil to the apple tree and tricks him again, this time into climbing the tree to get the apple for him, during which time... Jack carves a cross in the trunk of the tree, trapping the devil up there. This time he tells him, I want you to leave me alone for 10 years, or I'm not letting you out of this tree. And as an added bonus, when I do die, I don't want to go to hell. So no hell for me, or you're staying up in this this tree. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. Um, but it was lovely. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so the devil's like, oh my God, Jack, fine. Okay, fine. 10 years and you won't go to hell. And then his tongue burned a little because he said, oh my God. All right. so he you know jack scratches out the cross lets him go and eventually the drinking got the better of jack and he died so rather than immediately going down to hell his soul went up to heaven and he gets to the pearly gates of heaven why i mean are they actually made of never mind i don't understand heaven i imagine they're pearlescent (laughs) but they are not like made of pearls okay so he gets up to heaven and you know god is like whoa Back the fuck up. You are not getting in here, sir. Like, you were a horrible person in life. Down you go. So he sends Jack's soul to hell, but Jack can't get in there either. He's banging on the door, and the devil's like, dude, you made me promise. And I I can't break a promise. It's like my whole thing. So you can't come in here either. And Jack's like, what am I going to do? And the devil looks around, and for whatever reason, nearby is a a rutabaga. (laughs) And he's like... So he's like... Well, I tell you what, and he takes this rutabaga and he carves out, hollows it out, takes a single ember from hell, plops it into the rutabaga, hands it to Jack and says, here you go. This will light your way in the netherworld so that you can at least see where you're going as you amble around forever with no place to go. So Jack takes the rutabaga, cut to, you know, like hundreds of years later, 
In Ireland and Scotland, people are carving scary faces into turnips and potatoes and lighting them up, putting them in their windows to scare Stingy Jack away so he'll think, I don't know, that they're one of them. When I first told this story to Alan, he was like, why would the scary faces scare him away? Dude, <laughs> have you ever looked at an Irish or Scottish turnip jack-o'-lantern? <laughs> they're really Holy scary. shit. No, they are so creepy looking. No, and see, the the whole beginning part of this, for whatever reason, I didn't quite remember. And then as soon as you said rutabaga, I'm like, (laughs) yes, that's right. Dude, they're fucking terrifying. Like, just Google Irish or Scottish jack-o'-lantern or uh, rutabaga jack-o'-lantern. I'm looking it up right now. Turnip jack-o'-lantern. Holy Christ. You see? Oh my god, that's so disturbing. They're fucking awful. Like, they they look like the the mandrake faces from from Pan's Labyrinth, but worse. Right? Okay, that's what I'm doing next year. (laughs) I am absolutely doing potato lanterns next year. (laughs) That's fucking terrifying. Oh, that's great. I love it. They're just so awful. Oh, like, you guys need and, to look that up. And like our, I've I've seen some like really actually just wonderful orange standard American pumpkin jack lanterns that have been really creatively carved and you know scraped away and had fangs added to them that are really really spooky. But they do not, pardon my pun, hold a candle <laughs> to a fucking rutabaga or turnip jack-o'-lantern. You are not lying. That is very, very, very true. That's... I can't believe I, I I introduced a new thing to you. Oh, no, of course you did. It's not hard to do. I never, I mean, I'm, I live in the dark all the time. Yeah, no. And, well, and pumpkin carving is such, it's become such an art form, and I absolutely love it. I've gotten lost in galleries of just ornate pumpkin art. And I guess we started using the pumpkin here. We, you know, we had Irish and Scottish immigrants come over here, bring the legend of Stingy Jack, bring the jack-o'-lantern tradition. And because pumpkins were more plentiful here, um, we started using pumpkins, which I'm glad we did. So I'm a very big fan of, of the pumpkin as an icon, you know, as a symbol of Halloween. Um, another less exciting theory is that the term jack-o'-lantern was just a nickname given to night watchmen whose jobs it was uh, to light the street lanterns um, at night. But I prefer to believe in the drunk with the rutabaga. Drunk with the rutabaga. Especially now that I know what that looks like. That's beautifully mortifying. <laughs> <laughs> That'll wake you in the night. Oh, for sure. So close all the windows. Lock all the doors. Unless you're careful why he'll get yours. Don't think he'll hesitate a bit cause you clip your top if it will fit. So let's talk about scary movies. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, yeah. That's why we're here. That's why I'm here all the time. That's why I'm here. That's that's what you say in the very beginning. You love scary movies. I do, very much. And I am really excited to talk to you about them in particular because I know, as we've we've talked about this quite a bit in the past, we actually did an episode of Can We Keep It uh, about horror movies as well. And I know that you consider yourself somebody who is not much of an expert on horror films, but you have some really great experiences with scary movies. And so I'm really, really happy that that we're going to talk about this today. But I wanted to talk specifically about what for me is a very rare and particular type of horror film. Because I I mean, I I watch them so much. For me, I've just become very desensitized. I know that. There are very few horror movies that, that genuinely terrify me now at the age of 36. But there are still some. Um, and I really wanted to talk about those, the movies that we've seen 
that still send chills down our spines, that still give us nightmares or have the potential to. Um, and I wanted to focus on, on those for tonight because it is Halloween. <laughs> you know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? I have to lead with this question. I'm not going to say favorite because you okay. already said yeah, that you're, yeah, yeah. You're, not, you're not much for favorites. I get that. Um, I'm like a giant child. Everything is my favorite thing. You know, I'm like, oh, that's my favorite thing. Same, same. Yeah. Um, and so I get that. But so when, when I ask you, you know, like, what's your favorite scary movie? What is the first movie that pops into your head in terms of like lasting scares for you? No question. Lord of the Flies classic black and white not not that color bullshit um most people probably wouldn't think of lord of the flies as uh, a horror movie or even a thriller movie most people would call it a, a drama i personally would say that lord of the flies at least i only read the book i actually haven't seen uh, any film adaptation of it but lord of the flies the book absolutely a horror story 100 <laughs> percent Excellent. I feel vindicated. <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad you say that, because, especially referencing the book, because everything about Lord of the Flies, to me, is my kind of horror. Like, there, I'm, I, I don't mind uh, a bit of, of graphic on-screen violence or, you know, very graphically described horror literature where, you know, entrails are being pulled out of a body, that kind of thing. And, you know, the person is shrieking... But how will I eat pie? I don't know why that's what came to mind. That's pretty horrifying. How will one eat pie? Molly, without my entrails. Is that a quote from something? No, it just, <laughs> it just came out of my fucking face. I'm gonna die. I want to make that movie. We need to make that movie. I'm sorry. Maybe I'm a little punchy. We have been at this for a we while. We have been. It's okay. Uh, it's all right. Oh my god. Okay. <clears throat> so, Lord of the Flies. It is a very terrifying story. The story of Lord of the Flies is very terrifying to me because it is examining what happens when humanity starts to slip away from us and questioning all of those little dark recesses of our mind and our personalities and our behaviors when certain rules are removed or certain new rules are enforced that kind of change change the game for us. And we are either forced to do things that we would never, ever normally do, or we are desperately trying to escape other things that are trying to destroy us. And it's something that we have little to no power over. And Lord of the Flies is absolutely one of those things. Piggy. Huh? That was murder. You stop it! What good are you doing talking like that? The reason that I love the 1963 version so much, color film was available at that time, but it was specifically, uh, they specifically chose to shoot it in black and white to play on that light and shadow, all of the contrast uh, to what is actually out there in the jungle. Is there anything? Is it just the boy's imagination? Or, I'm sorry, I just gave myself chills when I was thinking about it. I, whoo, it like ran up my legs and I'm like, what is out in the jungle? I don't know. And of course, uh, I just like with sex, I have to relate everything back to sex. I also have to relate everything paradoxically back to Steven Universe. <laughs> there is this wonderful little episode um, in Steven Universe uh, called The No Homeboys. 
and or it features uh, characters in a book that Stephen is reading. There, it's kind of like a mishmash between the Hardy Boys and the Boxcar Children, and they're the No Home Boys. You know, they ride around in boxcars and they carry that. bindles. And and he talks about uh, you know this one particular book that he's reading in that series where they are being chased across the countryside by a mysterious stranger, which turns out to be the very fear resting within themselves. <laughs> I mean that's that's Lord of the Flies right there. Yeah. Um, and everything that happens to all of these boys, and at a certain point through it, after after everything that happens with Piggy, um, I won't give it away just in case you've never actually read it. I mean, it's 1963, and even <laughs> earlier, considering the book, but once once uh, reality, once humanity, once human society comes crashing back into their lives, they have no idea what they've gone through, and they're, they're all suddenly dazed. They were so sure about this thing. They were so confident and committed to this, you know, horrific way of life. And then suddenly societal rules kick back in and it's just, oh, well, I, I do say um, perhaps I was a bit hasty in uh, sharpening those very pointy sticks. Uh, is it tea time? No, that is a very devastating thing emotionally. And I think it's a really interesting thing to explore the aftermath in particular. It reminds me of an episode of The Twilight Zone called I Shot an Arrow Into the Air about three guys who um, they're, they're on a, a space flight mission and they think that they've crash landed on an asteroid uh, or you know some desert planet, but they haven't. They never even actually you know, made it out of our atmosphere, mm-hmm. but they don't know that. And because they believe, you know, if you woke up in the Nevada desert and that was all you could see around you, you and you thought you were on another planet, water became this very precious thing to them to the point where they're killing each other over this precious, precious water. And that it's that moment, that look on the last man standing's face when he realizes that they were in Nevada in the United States is one of those haunting facial expressions that has never left me and so much so much exists in that look and with lord of the flies at least from what i remember from the book they went into you actually got to see a little bit more you know of of what happens after that's terrifying it's absolutely and again i feel vindicated now that you also consider it uh, a horror story Maybe that's one of the reasons that I I have always kind of just stayed right on the edge of horror fandom is because I I have such a a broad definition of horror and a lot of it includes literary horror. Like there are certain stories of Edgar Allan Poe that are like unsettling, but they're not necessarily horrific in like a terrifying kind of way. They're just more unsettling and disturbing And there are movies that some people might consider uh, suspense or thrillers, but not necessarily horror. So before I turn the question back at you, could you also tell me just what, what would you call your definition of horror. I remember us touching down on this briefly in Can We Keep It? And um, I, I also have a very broad definition of horror. 
I like to I like to subcategorize. I'm a very big fan of that. Yes. You know, um, and com- kind of not necessarily compartmentalizing. There's a lot of overlap with certain films and certain film genres and subgenres. But for me, it does cover all manner of sins. And like, for example, um, you know, when I was putting together uh, some of my initial notes for my the Lady Killer episode for the first part of November, I was trying to decide whether or not to include fatal attraction on that list and to include the character of Alex Forrest as as a female villain in a horror film. Because fatal attraction is largely categorized as a thriller, as a drama, but Alex Forrest scares the crap out of me. I mean, just absolutely scares me to death. I wouldn't say that she would be the answer to, you know, your questions that you were turning back on me, but she's definitely someone that I find mortifying. And I think part of that is because, you know, it is a little bit at times like looking into a mirror of, you know, for all women, I think, to look at a character like Alex Forrest and say, how thin is the line between her and myself? You know, like what exactly, what what series of events could take me in the Alex Forrest direction where to where I'm just terrifying everyone, including myself. Um, and But again, not a lot of, I don't know how many people would really consider that a horror film, but I do. Same with Talk Radio, um, which is one of my all-time favorite films that is absolutely, by so many definitions, not a horror film. It's about um, Barry Champlain, who hosts a talk radio, kind of a shock jock, who hosts a talk radio show in Dallas. And it was just about his life and his, this, everything leading to this mental breakdown that he has on air and and the things that happen after and it is hands down one of the scariest films i've ever seen i had a panic attack while watching it the meltdown scene it was so beautifully shot and so unsettling and so relatable at times in ways again it's like looking in a mirror those are those are things that are really scary for me things where i feel like the film is really just turning a mirror around at me and forcing me to look at certain aspects of myself that, that frighten me. Um, which leads me to, I guess, my answer to your question, which it's a two-way tie for me in terms of, like, the scariest movie I've ever seen that still leaves me afraid. It's definitely a toss-up between Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the, the remake from 1978, or The Thing from 1982. And both of those films also have that element of the thing to fear is, you know, the darkness within. That story is present in a lot, a lot of my favorite horror films. And I think, going back to the question of what is horror, I think that that can be explored and has been explored uh, across so many genres of film that could, in a way, fall into that broad horror category. Matthew, I've lived in this city all my life, but somehow today I felt everything had changed. People were different. Not just Jeffrey, but everybody. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, every time I see it, it's, and it was the reason, actually, when I was talking about remakes, it's the reason why I can't say that I'm just across the board anti-remake is because this was this, the 1978 version, which was directed by Philip Kaufman, was a remake of an earlier film. And I've, I've seen the earlier film as well, but it, it doesn't do for me what the 78 version of Invasion does. It's, it's, a, it's a very scary, frightening film. And one of the things I think that always scared me the most about it, well, first of all, um, the character that Leonard Nimoy plays in the film, I think was particularly upsetting for me as a child growing up watching it because I was also an avid Star Trek fan as a kid. You know, I was raised by, my stepfather was a massive Trekkie and, and I, I just grew up worshipping Leonard Nimoy. Um, and 
to see him in this role that is such an ambiguous role with such a sort of sinister underbelly um, really confused me as a kid and, and kind of made me take a step back and question what I thought I knew about about the world itself, you know, like what can you, who can I trust and who can't I trust? And yeah, that's a huge theme in Invasion, obviously. And, uh, and it also with the thing, the thing I think is a little different. Uh, but again, not, not that much. The thing is a lot gorier. Although I don't know, Invasion has some pretty intense, grotesque imagery in it. Um, but yeah, so those would be, those were the two films that I remember being scared by the earliest in my life that still, if I watch them alone at night in the dark, I will still feel pretty freaked out. Why don't we just wait here for a little while? See what happens. As far as contemporary horror films go, I can think of a few that, like, you, you said you had a two-way tie. I was like, okay, okay, okay. I have a two-way tie also. Wait, it's a three-way tie. Wait, it's a four-way tie. It's, it's probably like a three-way tie with a really, really, really close fourth runner-up. Lay a mommy. All right, so, The Witch. I know a lot of people were not a fan of it. Whatever your reasons were, that's okay. I understand I love The Witch. Part of that is because of my utter obsession with um, just the archetype of the the feminine paranormal. No, this is the... The 2015 film. By Robert Eggers. Yes. I have actually not seen this either. So your your first two movies I haven't seen. I really need to get on it. (laughs) Okay. Wait, what was my first one? Lord of the Flies. Okay, yes, yes, yes. We have so many movies to watch. I know. (laughs) Um, So yes, uh, The Witch, for me, it maintained tension. For other people, it moved too slow. I understand. It it was so quiet so much of the time. And and maybe for me, that's that's what a lot of uh, my favorite horror films boil down to is isolation and quietness because the tie with The Witch, and this may kind of be a cross-genre film, but I think it has a lot of horror elements to it, is a German film with, uh, the English title is The Wall. Um, I, I did watch the uh, subtitled version of it because I, generally speaking, can't stand dubs. I can't stand dubs either. Uh, at least not on live action. But if, if you haven't seen The Wall, I highly recommend it. Um, it's tremendously acted, and the loneliness and the isolation that comes through in this is is so, like you feel it right down into the tippy toes of your mortal self. Um, Basically the, uh, the the storyline is that um, this woman, she's, she's probably in her late, late thirties, early forties, maybe mid forties, even, Um, you know, she's, she's unmarried. She doesn't have any children. She probably doesn't have any close family. She goes up to the mountains, uh, one weekend with a couple of her friends and her friends go down into the village, like on a Saturday morning and she doesn't go with them. She probably sleeps in or is just kind of hanging around the cabin and nightfall comes and they don't come back. Eventually the next day comes and I think the next day comes and eventually she realizes she's all alone up here and you know, there's there's not really a phone, or if there is, it's dead, you know, and she doesn't have a car, so she's like, I, I guess I gotta try to walk down to the village. And she gets to a certain point down the road where there is this invisible wall, and she cannot get through it. She can see everything on the other side, and she does eventually find a spot, uh, like a little further up the mountain, there is 
uh, what seems to be kind of an elderly couple that have that they're they're on their farm house there and they're just living out in the middle of nowhere, but they're not moving. They don't necessarily look dead, but they don't really look alive either. And I may be making this up, but I I remember the the image of a water pump and it's like still running. And I don't remember if it's because there's a person who has is like stopped mid-action of pumping this water pump and the water is still running, but they're not moving. And she tries to bang on the invisible wall and she tries to call out to them. If they hear her, they make no movement. And she just has no idea what this is. And winter is coming on. And she has to like basically scramble to figure out how to survive alone with no access to the outside world, no idea what's going on. I don't think she even has a radio or if she does, it doesn't work. There's no planes flying overhead. You know, there's there. it doesn't look like there's anything for miles and miles around. When the movie opens, she's like on her last piece of paper, the end, like maybe last pen that she's been recording for a few years, I think. But eventually... And I won't say when or how she does come into contact, albeit very briefly, with another human who was on that side of the wall, and they are not in the same state that she is. They didn't take to this isolation the way that she did. That sounds incredible. It's so good. <laughs> it so good. It's so, so good. I'm going to put that like right at the top of my watch it's list. It's really like, excellent. Yeah, that's, that's, that sounds incredible. It kind of reminds me in it partially just because it's it's set in Europe. But you recommended that one movie to me that I believe was on Netflix. Uh, was it called the The, the Ritual? The Ritual. Yeah. I wanted to call it the Sacrifice. The Ritual. I really really loved. And I again I think it's really just literally because it's out in the middle of the woods in Western Europe. <laughs> yeah, it's such a beautiful film. I really liked it. I thought I thought the Ritual was really good. It didn't scare me. Um, although I will say that the scenes, his, his the dream sequences, which I thought were just some of the most beautifully done dream sequences I may have ever seen in a film. Um, the movie itself, I think, was just it was just really good. But those sequences were masterful, and um, they also left that like pit in my stomach kind of mm-hmm. feeling in it in a very frightening way. That was really that was really it. And it wasn't that the dreams were necessarily scary. It was the repetition of them. It was the evolution of them. It was the way it was illustrated. It was just very realistic, you know, and realistic nightmares when when done well and and realistically in films. Speaking of which, sorry, this has nothing to do with anything, but I I was gonna except for the part where it does except for, <laughs> except for the part where it does. I was gonna mention this way earlier, but I actually had a nightmare last night about Freddy Krueger. Okay, it was a uh, Freddy Krueger was on loose, and you know, uh, and I was dreaming in the dream. And I was trying to wake up, and it was so neat because when I woke up this morning, I had that that brief four to six seconds where I looked around and I was like, "Am I actually awake? Is Alan gonna pop up and stab me? Like, is he gonna is he gonna have the glove? Am I really awake, or is this a false ending? Like, what's going on, Freddie? Like, it was so neat. That I is cannot, so perfect. I want to say that it happened 
in preparation for this episode, my brain was like, oh, we're doing the Halloween episode tonight. Gotta make sure we have a good story because I cannot remember having a nightmare that included Freddy Krueger in probably 15 years. It's been such a long time. So that was really, really cool. But yes, I, the wall, I will definitely check that out. So you said it was a three-way tie. You said um, it was the witch. the witch, the wall, the wall, and what was the third one? Get out. The Armitages are so good to us. They treat us like family. Oh, get out. I love, <laughs> love it. And, and uh, okay, this, I, it's one of those movies where, like, I watched it and I was like, I'm waiting for the thing. Because every time, every, the first time I watch a movie, it's, it's always like, I just want to sit there and enjoy it. I don't want to critique it. I'll critique it later after after I have a chance to watch it a few times. But usually by an end of the movie, I was like, okay, there were these one to five moments or one to five things that I didn't really care for or like really didn't land the right way or were kind of unnecessary, whatever. I don't remember having any about Get Out. I mean, I'm, I'm ready to watch it a few more times. Absolutely. I, I could not agree more. It chilled me to my very core. The freaking bone. Oh my god! For me, it was Catherine Keener. Catherine Keener rap out of me, and then um, the a couple of the moments with the servants, like when he was running really fast toward him in the yard, um, and her uh, was it Georgina? Was that her name? Um, she was like looking at herself in the window reflection, and he was watching her. They were both of those actors did such wonderful jobs. Um, everybody did. And Jordan Peele, thank the gods for Jordan Peele. Um, Can we just... Seriously. Take Between Get Out and Us, and then you know he's doing the new Candyman, right? No, I haven't yeah. seen that. It's so exciting. One of the things, and I, I've talked about this a lot, so I apologize to my listeners who I know have heard me say this, like, I don't even know how many times, but for me, you know, one of the reasons why all throughout my life I have constantly circled back to, to the horror genre and, and what led to me eventually becoming, you know, a bit of a fanatic. I find that horror as a genre in and of itself, that broad genre that we were talking about, is one of the most, if not the, the rawest form of cultural expression. Among so many other things, I think that it lends and can lend so much insight into um, collective fears of particular uh, cultural groups and, and people from all over the world. Like we were talking earlier off the record about like Japanese horror. There are roots to the fears that are mm -hmm. often depicted in like Japanese films, for example. And when it comes to films made by American black writers and filmmakers, it's a cultural representation that I've seen. We see a lot less of in horror films. In fact, it was a major trope that the black guy in the horror film is mm -hmm. the first to die, or at the very least, definitely going to die, won't mm -hmm. survive. Well, and of course, we, we have uh, a, a desire to further understand that perspective uh, ne never mind about the the people who actually experience those fears, the people who experience that in their day to day, uh, who have been feeling this for generations upon generations, and never really had an outlet to express it um, in the same way that white folks get to with horror. There are all these again that that deeply rooted fear. Black focused horror is is something that I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing more of. Go play, boys. <laughs> Don't burn our house down.
so there's a movie, and uh, this kind of goes back to an, another genre, 1979. Are you talking about, are you going to talk about Suspiria? No, but is oh. that the same year? No, I think Suspiria was 77. Actually. Okay, either way, either way. Those are two movies that have almost entirely female casts, so of course I love it. And of course there are lesbotronic elements all over the place. So I love it even more. Wait, does the remake of Suspiria have an all-only female cast? Are there no men in Suspiria, the remake? I don't know that there are. There there may be, and they're just like passing moments. Like oh, okay, people okay. in the people in the pub that right. they go down to at night. There were there um, were a couple of not to not to get off topic, oh, but no, there, there were a couple there, of male characters. Well and, and in even the in even in the dance school, uh in the original, I don't in the remake I don't recall there being any male students, but there were a few male students in uh, the 1970s version. No, there were. There were a couple of male students. Also, Udo Kier was in that film as well. That's he right, was, he yeah, was. Yeah. <laughs> I'll he's never, in everything. He is in everything because he's Udo Kier and he's amazing. I'm, um, I'm not sad about it. But no, I, I, you know, I haven't seen the remake of Suspiria yet. I was very, I'm very protective of the original Suspiria. Understandably. Um, but I was intrigued by their casting choice with Tilda Swinton because as soon as I found that out, I was like, okay, I'm going to eventually get around to this because... I, don't, I haven't even seen the film, and I know she's perfect, just hands down for for, for that role that they put her in. So yeah. anyway, I'm so sorry. I just it, I, it was 77 was the original Suspiria. Yes. Um, but what was 79? But then two years later, yes, <laughs> we had released the Killer Nun. Oh yes, the Killer Nun. Oh, I love the Killer Nun. <laughs> just the thought of what he did to me makes me want to take revenge on all men, to snuff them out like he snuffed out no. my happiness. No, that's enough. Nunsploitation. Heck yeah. There was a whole string of them, including a Japanese one. Just one? Uh, at least. <laughs> at least. There, but there was one in particular. I cannot, for the life of me, think of the name. But the Killer Nun, I that is is all of the like graphic horror scenes, you know, may, may appear to be a little kitschy. But I still am generally scared of that movie. It. I wouldn't say that it makes it like into the ones that like are like gut-wrenching I wake up in a cold sweat at night, but but it's still it is genuinely scary, very watchable unless you are not into horror films made outside of the United States before what 1982. Yeah, I mean there there is I think it does take a particular amount of patience and acceptance sometimes for films, you know, made earlier you know, outside of the U.S. simply because of a lot of the time they're they're dubbed and you have very little other option. It's like mm-hmm. a, it's like Tombs of the Blind Dead, for example, which I think is a great film and I think it had some potentially very scary stuff in it. But I've never been able to find a version of the film that's subtitled. I've only ever been able to find the dubbed versions, and it just makes it ridiculous. It makes it sound and feel ridiculous. Even my first time seeing Black Sunday, mm-hmm. for God's sake. And I mean, that's a great film, but God, I can't do, especially like 60s and 70s dubbing is just usually pretty bad. Uh, I did want to mention, you talked, you've talked. you talked a lot tonight about isolation. I've talked a lot in general. But no, I love that. I need to be quiet. No, you do not. <laughs> shut up. I mean, don't shut up. Ha! Ha! <laughs> 
Do not shut up. Please I brought continue. you on here to talk. That's why I wanted you here with me. I can't believe I had so much to say, to oh, be perfectly honest. I am not I thought I was going to be so quiet this entire time. No, I'm not surprised Apparently at all. Apparently I know things You've seen a lot things. of movies. You know things. Um, Please continue. But you've talked a lot tonight specifically about isolation, which is, you know, I think one of the most commonly used tools in horror storytelling. It's actually, I think, on the checklist of a horror story. The first thing you do, you introduce the character, and then you isolate them. The isolation factor is huge in horror. For me, one of the scariest films I've ever seen, and this is a newer film, um, and it's, I have still to this day only been able to finish it once. I could only watch it once. It was directed by Mike Flanagan, released uh, two years ago in 2017, and that is Gerald's Game. Have you seen this? No. Oh my god. It's based on a Stephen King story, uh, on a novel of his actually, and it's about a woman played in the film, It's uh, she's played by Carla Gugino, who is just So good. So good. I'm so glad they cast her. She plays a married woman. She and her husband, uh, they've been married, I think, for about 15 years. They're very unhappy. Their marriage is just not doing well. And they decide to go out to their summer home, which is way, way, way out on a lake in the middle of nowhere. I'm assuming it's set in New England because that's Stephen King. Presumably. Yeah. So they go out to their lake house. It's just the two of them. And they're going to try to reconnect. And her husband wants to do this, wants to accomplish this reconnection by getting to play out a fantasy that he wants to play out with her. And the fantasy involves him handcuffing her. And it gets real rapey real fast. And with her history and who she is and where she's come from, she didn't realize that her husband had rape fantasies. She didn't realize that it was going to get quite as dark as it got when they start fooling around. And so she's handcuffed to the posts of this bed. It gets, you know, he's, he's crossing the line. And she's like, you need to get off of me right now. Like, stop. I don't want this. This is too much. It's, it's too intense. And he, at first he does relent, but then he kind of goes back. And he has a heart attack on top of her and dies. She is out in the middle of nowhere, handcuffed on both sides to a bed with her dead husband you know, now laying on the floor and the front door to the house was left open. She can't get to her phone. She doesn't have any food. The only water that she has is this little glass of like a little bit of water on a shelf right above her. She doesn't have the keys. So she, and she's in this little negligee. So she's like alone in a nightgown. It is like right now, as I'm talking about it, I can feel my heart is racing and I can feel, you know, my body is so tense. And part of it was Carla Gugino's performance because she just did such a phenomenal job. The other part is this story. It's, I think, one of, at least from this adaptation, one of King's scariest stories as a woman watching, maybe. that Maybe that's what it is. And I don't mean to turn it into that, but, like, as a woman watching this woman go through this, it is mortifying. And, of course, there are some outside elements, you know, but it's basically just her losing her mind. Okay, you're wasting precious time here. I can't get out. You have to. I am chained to the goddamn bed. And it is so scary. One of the single scariest movies I've ever seen. I cannot Sounds recommend really it. Sounds really good. Yeah, I can't recommend it enough. And I've tried watching it a couple more times since that first time, and I, I can't do it. And there are very few films that I can say that about. 
In fact, I want to say that there are no other films. Maybe Dancer in the Dark, which is also not really technically a horror film, but I was only ever able to watch it one time. It was too disturbing. It was too <laughs> hard for me. Got the jitters, got the jitters. You know, from the moment that I get up on the go without a letup, way to bring another setup. Got the jitters. We do have to start wrapping up um, because we've been at this for a while and it is getting really late. But before we do, I wanted to ask you, um, moving on from films that actually scare us. What? I'm sorry. I just saw in your notes Frozen. Oh, that's a different Frozen. I know. I know. But I just... <laughs> The only thing that scared me about Frozen was how bad the writing was in the one you're talking about. Everything except songs. The songs were fine. I love you, Alan Menken. Uh, no, the Frozen that I was referring to in my notes, which were not, I mean, I, I, have a, I had a whole big long list of movies I wanted to talk about today. You know, but so Kat's looking at my notes right here. And the Frozen I was talking about was the 2010 film directed by Adam Green, which did not does not seem to be that popular with people, which I was really surprised by because I thought it was great. It's a, another very isolated story that's kind of a natural, like a man versus nature type story about three people, um, a guy, his new girlfriend, well, I guess she's kind of, kind of a new girlfriend, and his old, his childhood best friend who doesn't really get along with the new girlfriend very well. And the three of them go skiing on this sort of, like, friend, let's try to get you guys getting along kind of trip uh, up in the mountains. Obviously, it's skiing. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, this is why I normally do have, like, a very light script that I try to follow. Because if I don't, I will say the absolute dumbest shit. I just, I have to, like, keep my brain from going in the, just the it, dumbest places. No, and Like, they were up, they, they were skiing in the mountains. <laughs> At a place oh, where you ski, like, in the mountains, you know? <laughs> no, I I am not good to have around if you want to be scripted. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm Sorry. glad, though. I like it. I don't do the script thing when I have guests, I notice. Like, but anyway, you know. they, they're up in the mountains. They're um, skiing. But yes, yeah, so they're skiing in the snow. mountains. <laughs> on snow. <laughs> with skis. And uh, they end up kind of bribing their way onto the ski lift at the very, very end of the night to do one more trek down the hill. And the guy that agreed to let them up there takes a break to go to the bathroom and doesn't tell the guy replacing him that there is a group of kids on the lift. So they just shut it down. And so these three kids are, are stranded on the ski lift out in the middle of nowhere at the end of the weekend. So there will be nobody coming to the mountain for a week. So there's no option of them getting rescued and they know this. So it really just becomes, how are we going to get down? Because they're, like, way up up in the middle, essentially. And it is it is a very terrifying film, in my opinion. And it does have a lot of really well-tailored tension. And there's some moving stuff in there as well. And I thought everybody's performances were really good. And it was another one of those situations where it's, like, it hits home because I'm, like, I would not be useful at all in this situation. I would absolutely die. I would have nothing to contribute. I was like this the whole time. You can't see it, but I'm doing, like... <laughs> Claw hands. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Um, it's It was really it was scary. So, anyway, that's, that's the Frozen that I was talking oh about. God. So, we talked a lot about movies that, you know, scare us today as adults. And I know that several of the movies that you talked about also scared you as a child. So I don't really know how, if you can answer this a little differently, but my last question to you tonight was going to be like, what was, what is the film that you remember first being like, 
truly scared by? Like, do you remember, like, the first, like, nightmare you had, you know? Or, like, what was the first nightmare you remember? You're gonna fucking laugh. Oh, I'm excited. <laughs> Tell me. I want to laugh, Because please. it's... It's really not scary. <laughs> no, no. Neither is mine. Neither is mine. Come on, hit me. <sighs> I, I get so embarrassed by it because well, I know the first one was meant to be kind of uh, scary, and but then all of the sequels were funny. And are you, talking, are you gonna say like Jack Frost or Child no. Play? Child Play? Yes. Oh my god, that's. Not I was fucking like six or seven, dude, and no. my friend told me you've got to turn to channel thirty-five, which at the time I don't think was MTV, but I guess could have been. Yeah, no, thirty-five was MTV in Ohio. Okay, yeah. there, there you go. Okay, so you got to turn to channel thirty-five, and it was like. For me, not knowing what I was looking at, legitimately terrifying. I I think my parents were outside cleaning out the garage, and I I was supposed to be helping them, but for the rest of that day, I could not freaking walk around a corner. If I did, I had to, like, psych myself up for it. I had to look behind me and then fucking race around the corner. I'm like... (laughs) And I had nightmares for, like, fucking months. I gotta say, though, I I don't think that's nearly as embarrassing as you think. At least the original one. First of all, Child's Play, yeah, at least the original was always intended to be a horror film. Obviously, they did get more ridiculous, and I'm really glad they did. But if you are a small child and you see a doll that looks mysteriously like the My Buddy doll, (laughs) you know, from when we were kids, Mm -hmm. coming to life and killing people, especially something, you know, in some of the brutal ways that he does. And then you had Brad Dorf doing that amazing voice. Well, John, it's been fun, but I gotta go. I have a date with a six-year-old boy. The Charles Lee Ray voice is one of the most memorable voices in this genre. And, like, he was terrifying. So, no, I don't think there's anything to be embarrassed about. Especially because my first film that ever gave me nightmares... I got you so beat here. I'm sorry. On the embarrassing factor. I'm ready. Are you ready? I'm ready. The Burbs. The fucking Burbs. (laughs) By Joe Dante, 1989. That's starring... the full title. They they never quite got it through the censors at the studio. Um, they didn't, but they should have. It absolutely tried. was the fucking birth. <laughs> Subtitle, Get Ready Molly, Strap In, Henry fucking Gibson. That's the entire <laughs> full title. Because... So, I mean, it's the Burbs. It's a comedy, for God's sake. It is It is a comedy. Yes, it is a slightly horror comedy, but it is a straight-up comedy. It has Corey Feldman in it, okay? It's got Tom Hanks. Oh, it is, oh yeah, and it was young Corey too. It was Corey when he wasn't crazy and he was still really cute. And it's, I, but it, ah, it was Henry Gibson. And he, you know, he plays the, the sort of father to this you know, creepy ass fucking backwoods yet at the same time, like gifted, medically gifted family that lives, you know, across the street from Tom Hanks's character. And when I was a little girl, which just came out in 89, and I want to say that I saw it, like, you know, right away. I mean, not in the theater, but definitely as soon as it was available on VHS. My parents were really big on, like, movie nights on Friday nights. They would go rent, we'd rent a video cassette from the All-Star Video, bring it home, and we'd watch it together on Friday nights. Pretty sure we watched The Burbs, like, as soon as it came out. And um, I remember vividly shaking and I was curled up in this little, it was a sailboat blanket that I used to curl up in all the time. It was one of those really, like, weird, reversible Afghan things. And I was, like, hiding every time Henry Gibson was on screen. I don't think my parents saw it coming because they knew Henry Gibson from laughing, 
just like the just an absolute contrast to the Henry Gibson from the Burbs. And I think they really were very confused at how scared I was by him. I had nightmares of that man for so long, just an immeasurable amount of time, it seems. And then years and years later, I got older. I became obsessed with the Dick Van Dyke show again. Like I grew up loving that show, but I got really into it in my mid 20s. And I was watching an episode where Sally brings a date home to Rob's and he reads this little poem called Keep a Goin'. And it was Henry Gibson. I guess it was what I needed. It was the slap in the face that like 26, 27 year old me had needed for such a long time to remind me that this was one of the single most adorable and funny actors that ever walked the face of the earth. I was so traumatized by him and the birds. It took me <laughs> decades to like get over it. So yeah, that was mine. I, I think that's way more embarrassing. I think you have every right to have been scared by child's play at that age. I, I feel a little bit better about that. <laughs> I think but, but at the same time, I totally understand where you're coming from on that. There there are just certain things that when you're a kid, they're like, what are you talking about? This is like a fun, like whimsical thing. Oh, yeah. Like for certain people, now granted, he is fucking terrifying. But for certain people, um, the child catcher in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang gives them nightmares. (laughs) Yeah. I think more than once in my life, I've heard stories from people that say Ronald McDonald, like McDonald's commercials gave them nightmares when they were kids. So I guess it just depends on what really, like, terrifies us to our very core. What's ironic to me, you know, not to go off on a a short narcissistic tangent, but, like, what's ironic to me is that 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 is the first time I ever, my first memory of being thoroughly terrified by something was Henry Gibson as the evil doctor in this movie. And I grew up obsessed with Frankenstein, obsessed with evil doctors. Jeffrey Combs became my favorite actor after I saw Reanimator, which as we all know is my favorite horror film. And like, I grew up loving evil doctors. (laughs) It's my favorite trope. And it's like, I wonder sometimes, you know, what happens in a child's brain? It's like, it's like a little road exists in your brain Uh and you get really scared and you're like, where am I going to go with this? Am I going to run away from this for the rest of my life? Or is this going to awaken something in me? <laughs> you know? And what does that say about six-year-old me that it awoken something in me that never truly left? I don't know. I just, I think about that sometimes, that that was the first thing that ever scared me. And now here I am with like fucking Herbert West action figures, like, you know, <laughs> all over the place. This might be something uh, for a future collaboration between the two of us, but this idea of, you know, the the things... Looking back to the things that first truly terrified us as children uh, and what it does to how we view the world and how we consume media um, as young adults and then adult adults. Would you, could you maybe someday do something with me where we discuss nightmares? You talking about your Freddy Krueger nightmare earlier in, you know, your brain's delightful way of prepping you for this episode i had maybe not a nightmare necessarily i have a lot of dreams that other people might classify as nightmares but for me my nightmares have always been something that i want to see through to the end i want to stay in it as long as possible regardless of how horrifying it is how violent how how gross i want to get to the end and i want to keep exploring it no, I, I mean, I, I don't think you'll have to twist my arm. I think that sounds really great. I think that would be, that would be really fun. It's, it's interesting when you were talking about that, how you just, no matter how horrifying, no matter how, you know, grotesque and frightening, you want to see your nightmares through to the end. You sound an awful lot like a final girl. Oh, shit. 
I know that's going to be a real hot mic moment, but... <laughs> Live in the trope, baby. Live in the trope. All right. So thank you so much, Kat. I really appreciate you coming here and talking to me tonight. I wish you never had to leave. I wish you could just move <laughs> in here, just live on my living room floor. I'm sure that'd be really uncomfortable. I can but probably try to hang from the ceiling, you know, create some sort of pulley system. I mean, at least then we're, we're taking advantage of the high ceilings. That's true. Or we could just actually build you like a perch, like a bat, and you could sleep upside down, <sighs> you know. All right, but you have to refer to me as Wednesday. I will absolutely do that. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine recently started calling bats Wednesdays, and it's the most adorable thing. And I also call them sky puppies, but they are also now Wednesdays. Uh, is that is that because is that like a reference to Wednesday Adams, or is that just a reference to the Maybe. day of the week? Maybe. <laughs> I like it either way. That makes me happy. I like sky puppies too, though. I like it's a them great nickname. <laughs> um, but. Sadly, since you do have to go home because it is getting late, uh, I wondered if before we head out, did you want to talk a little bit more about Feathers and Teeth? Because I'm sure, I, I know I want to hear more about it, and I'm sure that at least a couple of people out there listening probably want to hear about this project, or anything that you have going on in your creative life. Feathers and Teeth by Sharice Castro-Smith, uh, relatively new script, and uh, what, what I'm directing isn't a full production of it, it's a staged reading uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with that, basically what it is is uh, a parsed-down production where there are no costumes, there's no set, and uh, you generally have a group of actors on a stage or, you know, just in a space. Uh, they're usually seated. Occasionally they will stand. They have music stands in front of them to hold their scripts. And it's mostly about presenting the script itself. This is a wonderful little story it's set in 1978 in a factory town in the Midwest. This whole play has a kind of forced 1970s family-based sitcom aspect to it, where, you know, even in the stage directions, it is suggested that there is perhaps a laugh track. But this is a horror play. There are some uh, elements of the paranormal, but we are never quite sure if they are metaphorical, if they are illustrative, um, or if, in fact, it is just pure human darkness. And between all of this, we have these little beast creatures that are scooped up into this cast iron pot, and they start to grow. I love this play so much. <laughs> That's great. If, if you just do a Google search for the Mad Hat Cat... M-A-D-H-A-T-K-A-T-T, then you will find me. And that is for Twitter, that is for Facebook, that is for YouTube, where I occasionally post things. I'm so happy you came on the show. I'm really happy to it be here. Feels weird to call it a show. I'm really glad you came on the show. It is a show. <laughs> feels weird to call it that, but No, it is. That's oh, yeah. exactly what this this is a professional up in here? Uh, I don't know if I'd go so far as to call it professional, but I totally, totally feel you. And yes, I'm really, I'm really glad you were here. Uh, in addition to uh, getting in touch with Kat, find, finding them on the internet, you can also 
find me um, in a couple of different ways. My Patreon campaign, uh, it's patreon.com forward slash final girl confessions. If you go to that site, about halfway down the page on the front page in the about me, you'll find an open invitation to my discord. If for some reason the invitation is broken, as is often the case with discord invitations, <laughs> uh, you can email me directly at finalgirlconfessions at gmail.com and I'll send you an invite directly. Oh, we, we forgot though. I forgot to ask you guys out there, those of you who are listening, what are some of your favorite Halloween memories or your earliest Halloween memories? What was your favorite Halloween costume from your days of trick-or-treating? How do you feel about the Chesapeake, Virginia law? Um, and most importantly, what to you is the most actually frightening film you have ever seen? What's your favorite scary movie? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. What comes to mind? If you would like to answer any or all of these questions, which I urge you to do, I, I love keeping these conversations going, um, head over to the Discord and there is a channel called The Confessional. Come talk to me. I will see all of you after Halloween. I hope you have the best, spookiest, most amazing holiday ever thus far in your life. Kat, I hope the same for you. I hope that your Halloween is spectacular. First episode in November, I will be talking about lady killers, female villains in horror films, as per your request to my patrons, who I would like to thank just so much all day long. Xerxes, Eli, Susie Q, and the Ghost Villa, also known as Alan. Thank you guys so much for your patronage. I deeply appreciate your support. You know, I just love you to death. Oh my God, can we say it together? Yeah, we can totally say it together. Are you ready? Yes, yes, yes. All right. Yes, yes. Okay, okay. Until next time, creep, creep it real. It real. 